last week we talked about one of life's biggest questions, and that is this, what is life for? What is this life for? And anytime we ask a question like that, whenever we ask, what is this for, we're asking a purpose question. Um, like if you went to the junk drawer in your house and somebody picked something up, and they said, what is this? They're asking a purpose question. They say, what does this go to? What is this connected to? And if we went to that junk drawer and we picked up ourselves, our tiny little life, and said, what is this tiny little life for? Hopefully it would lead us to the real question, which is who is this little life for? Um, what are we doing with this life? Are we trying to build our lives, our kingdom here on earth? Or are we trying to magnify the Lord to make him the center in our lives? All right. Go ahead and put this up here. This is a picture of the Great Pyramid at Giza. Okay. This was built in the 26th century, making it roughly about 4,600 years old, give or take. It took 27 years to build this thing. And it was the tallest structure in the world for about 3,800 years. That's pretty impressive. Now, I have an overflow gift card to the person who can tell me the pharaoh that was buried in this tomb. Was it touched? It was not touched. <laughs> That's the crazy thing. That's the one we all know. It wasn't Ramses. It was a guy named Pharaoh Khufu. I never even heard of this. Right? Pharaoh Khufu built the biggest pyramid in the world, the largest of the seven wonders of the ancient world, and nobody even knows his name. Are we trying to build our kingdom here on earth, or are we trying to live for the who? Living for a what is too small. Our lives are too short to live for a what. They need to be lived for a who? For him. For me, it was a little bit heavy. Uh, I mean, we're talking about our time, we're talking about our lives, we're talking about our purpose. And if you think about it, we really define our lives as time. That's how we define our, our time here on earth. Um, in the past 50 years specifically, our culture has spent more money, more research into trying to figure out how to live longer, how to extend our time. Um, we've been obsessed with health and with longevity. And like I said last week, the average age for somebody here in America, our longevity is about 77 years. Uh, and Moses, we walked through um, Psalm 90 last week, said that our years are going to be between 70 and 80. <laughs> so despite all the technological advancements that we made, Moses knew what he was talking about. Um, we can spend a lifetime of money in hospitals, right? Just trying to buy more time. But when we talk about time, uh, we say, we say time is money, right? And we use uh, words like you can invest your time. You can save your time. You can spend your time. You're living on borrowed time. So we use these phrases um, that tie into things like money, and that's how important our time is. Time is irretrievable. There is no literal instant replay in our lives, but we record more video than any other culture, any other time in history. We record all this video because we want to relive it later. We're trying to extend time by reliving it later. Uh, but our lives here on earth, we looked at it from an eternal perspective last week, are just a blip in eternity. They're just a blip. They're so short. And as we read through Psalm 90, uh, the man Moses, Moses wrote that psalm, uh, had more perspective than probably anybody else that's ever lived uh, because he had it all and then he lost it all. And he wrote, Lord, teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Because if we live like our days are numbered, because they are, 
then we will live with purpose. For Paul says, my purpose to live is Christ. That's my purpose. And no matter what, I am going to do that through preaching. I'm going to do that through magnifying him and bringing as much glory to him as I can because of what he's done for me. Regardless of the cost, regardless of what happens to me, I'm going to do it urgently because I know that my time is short. And so he used his time purposefully. He used his time wisely. In the Screwtape Letters, C.S. Lewis tells a story about Satan and his demons and they're standing around trying to figure out how to attack a world that is listening to the message of the gospel. And one of the demons in the back stands up and he says, I know, Master, when I get down there and I take control of people's thoughts, I'm just going to tell them that there's no heaven. And Satan goes, nah, that's not going to work. I mean, this book of truth here, it tells everybody um, that there is a future glory, that there's something beyond so that's not going to work. And then another demon stands up and he says, I know, I'll tell him there's no hell. And so he says, no, that's not going to work. When Jesus went on earth, he talked more about hell than he did about heaven. And people know that all the wrong that's inside of them need to be dealt with. They know that they deserve hell. So telling them that there's no, there's no hell isn't going to work. And then one genius demon in the back stood up and says, I know, I'll just tell him there's no hurry. There's no hurry. You've got time. And that's one of the biggest lies that, this, that the enemy tells us, that we've got time. We live very busy lives. We live in a very busy culture. We're carrying out our plans. But when it comes to our eternal plans, we buy into the lie that we've got time. There's no hurry. And Paul's aim was to convince everybody that our time is short and we need to be about the Lord's business. That was his aim, to know that our time is short. So let's read our text for today. This is going to be Philippians 1, starting in verse 22. It says, If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and to be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you for the progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Now, I titled this message, Sitting on a Suitcase. It's kind of hard to see, isn't it? Sitting on a Suitcase. Uh, because Paul has just given us his mission statement, to live is Christ. And now he's talking about how he's being torn. He's kind of um, you know, going back and forth, living in the tension of wanting to stay here and minister to the church or to go and be with Jesus. Either way, he's ready. Um, he's telling us something that we already know, and that is this, that we are earth-born, but we are heaven-bound. We're earth-born, but we're heaven-bound. A newly married couple was sitting in the lobby of a hotel, and they were getting ready to leave to go on their honeymoon to catch their flight. And so they called a taxi to come pick them up to take them to the airport. And so they sit down on their suitcases, and they start talking. And they lose track of time, and they realize the taxi's not there yet, so he gets up and calls the taxi company, and they had lost their reservation. So they send somebody over very, very quickly, and they're able to get on the taxi, and they're able to get to the airport and catch their flight to Cancun. <laughs> Natalie and Josiah are getting married in a week. We're down to single digits. We're almost under a week. That's awesome. <laughs> they catch their flight. But what if, what if they were sitting on their suitcase and they were having so much fun, so much of a good time talking to each other that they refused to get in the taxi and go on to their final destination? We would say that they're crazy, right? But how often do we sit around 
and enjoy the conversation without pressing on to our final destination, living as if heaven doesn't exist. Jonathan Edwards once said, he said, so many of us live like the distracted traveler who takes up residence in a hotel along the way instead of pressing on to his destination. The Apostle Paul suffered no such attachment to the things of this world. As today's passage is going to demonstrate, he was well aware of the future glory that was waiting for him. And we can detect a certain tension that he has here. Um, he enjoyed the fellowship. He enjoyed the churches and teaching them and being with them. But he knew that it was far better to be with the Lord. Uh, but he knew he was going to have to remain and continue to be their teacher. Um, but what he really wanted to do was to see Jesus, um, to go to a much better place. He knew that death is not the final tragedy for the believer. Okay? To live as Christ, that's good. But it is better to see Jesus face to face. That is a game. The contrast right here is between the life here and the life to come. Between the good and the better. Because life here is good to live as Christ. But the better is to go to heaven and to see him face to face. But for the believer, this is interesting. Um, I never really thought of it this way. But even heaven isn't the best. Like, it's the better. But the best is when... After the resurrection, we get our glorified bodies, and there's a new heaven, and there's a new earth, and that lasts forever into eternity. That is the best. Even people in heaven, they see, you know, once they get there, there is a best to come, a future glory, which is pretty incredible to think about. But he's sitting on a suitcase, only he's not staying. He's packed and he's ready to go. Um, his only connection to this world is fruitful labor. That's the only reason he wants to say is that if I stay, I know that I can be fruitful. Heaven's looking pretty good right about now. But I know that I need to stay on your sake. But if I'm still breathing, I'm still battling. I want to live, but only as long as I can be fruitful. What is fruitfulness to Paul? Well, fruitfulness, first and foremost, is winning converts, bringing people to Jesus. That was his purpose. After Jesus appeared to him, after that rocked his world, he said, I'm going to do everything I can to win people to the Lord. That was the number one thing, was winning converts. Second was holy living. In Romans 6, it tells us, but now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life, holy living. That was the second fruitfulness of Paul's life. Thirdly, faithfulness, fruitfulness was giving. Romans 15, 28, Paul is speaking to the church about the donations that he has picked up and that he's taking back to the church of Jerusalem. And he says this, when therefore I have completed this, and have delivered to them what has been collected. The word there, collected in the Greek, literally means what has been sealed to them as fruit. That is the fruitfulness, giving his fruitfulness, the offering was. Next fruitfulness is good works. Colossians 1.10 says, So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. We are to walk in good works. Lastly, fruitfulness is praise. Hebrews 13.15 says, through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of the lips that acknowledge his name. Worship, praise to God is also fruitfulness. Paul said, as long as I'm here, I'm going to win converts. I'm going to live a holy life. I'm going to give and I'm going I'm to teach the other Christians to give. I'm going to walk in good works and I'm going to praise regardless of my circumstances, regardless of what's going on in my life. I'm going to praise and I'm going to be fruitful. Now, here's an important part, an important point for all of us. Um, our job here is to be fruitful, but our fruitfulness ends when we die. We get rewarded in heaven 
for the fruit that we bear here on earth. But once we die, that's where our fruitfulness ends. Paul, you know, it's kind of like, it's kind of like the saying, do your giving while you're living. Then you'll be knowing where it's going. <laughs> be fruitful while you're here. Paul said he also wanted progress. He wanted the Philippians continual spiritual growth. Um, Jesus told us, um, you know, while we're here, we need to be busy about the things of the kingdom. In Luke 19, uh, he's telling the parable of the talents. And he's saying there was a master. And the master said, I am going away, but I am going to come back. And he was talking about himself. And he talked to his servants and he gave them all money. And he said, do business until I return. Now, it's interesting because in the King James, it says, occupy until I come. And I think there are way too many Christians who occupy and not do business. Jesus told us to do business, be active, get it, you know, <laughs> invest my money. I want something for your labors when I come back. Paul knows that he could go ahead and go to heaven right now and all of his hassles would be gone. He wouldn't have to smell a jail cell the rest of his life if he were to go to heaven. But he also knows that that's gonna end his effectiveness. Most people want to stay here because they are the center of their universe. Right, they're only seeking to gratify themselves. But what if, what if we lived as the church if to live was Christ? And to die wasn't a tragedy, but it was actually gain because it ushered us into his presence. That was interesting. <laughs> Who wants to sing the books of the Bible? <laughs> wow. The Bluetooth must have connected in here. That's weird. Good to know. <laughs> All right, Rebecca. <laughs> Most people want to stay here <laughs> because they are the center of their universe. Um, our time is too short. We need to be living for a who and not for a what. Okay? Um, what we do for other people is what's going to live on. That's what's going to bear fruit. Jesus said, while you're here, we need to be serving others. He said, I did not come to be served but to serve. Uh, a friend of mine once told me, he said, people may not necessarily remember what you did for them, but they will remember how you made them feel, right? They may not remember what you did, but they will remember how you made them feel. And so are we loving people? Are we loving people to life? Are we serving people while we're here? Uh, when you were born, you cried while other people rejoiced. We should live in such a way that when we die, people cry and we rejoice. We want them rejoicing when we're gone. We want people to cry while we're rejoicing. If you really think about it, it's amazing to me, the instructions that were given to the early church. I mean, they didn't have the New Testament. And we don't even know if they had much access to the Old Testament. I mean, the church that turned the world upside down basically had the revelation of Jesus Christ and the teaching of Paul and the disciples. I mean, they had some of the letters, some of them, they passed them around. But for the most part, they had the teachings of Paul and the disciples that the kingdom of heaven was here, that there was forgiveness for their sins, that Jesus had come here to die for their sins, uh, that they needed to just love God and love people, right? That they need to repent from their sins. And by the way, here are some of the sins as God sees them in his sight, not in your sight. Um, oh, we're not supposed to lie. We're not supposed to cheat. We're not supposed to, you know, covet things. Do good works, give and praise. These are the instructions that were given to the early church. They said, go. Right? Here's the instructions. This is pretty much it. Love God, love people. Be grateful. Praise. Honor God. Now go. And these people turn the world upside down. Paul says something here that I can relate to. And he starts to 
think out loud a little bit after he's given us um, you know, what he is thinking when he's living in the tension between staying here and going to heaven. And he says, which I shall choose, I cannot tell. He says, I don't know. Now he uses this phrase about 12 times in all of his, all of his letters, but this is something that I can relate to because if there's one thing that I know, it's that I don't know a lot of the time. And he says, I don't know. Now he's, he couldn't choose his fate but it's just a personal preference thing. He's so committed to God's will that whatever it is, he's fine with that because he knows that either one is a pretty good option, whether he stays or whether he dies. So now that can be a tough thing for us as believers to say that whatever you have for me, God, that's fine because all I want is your will for my life. So whether it's good things, whether it's bad things, whatever it's trials we have to walk through because you're turning me more and more into the likeness of your son, that can be a hard thing for us to say, your, your will be done, Lord Jesus, in our lives. I mentioned C.S. Lewis earlier. I'll mention him again. Um, I'm really excited to meet Clive when I get to heaven. That's his first name, Clive. C.S. Lewis said this. He says, we're not necessarily doubting that God will do the best for us, but we are wondering how painful the best will turn out to be. We're not necessarily doubting that God will do the best for us, but we're wondering how painful the best will turn out to be. He is turning us into the image of his son, and that is gonna require some chipping away, it's gonna require some trials, it's gonna require working out the flesh in our lives to get it out. I mean, when the children of Israel, God delivered them out of Israel in a day, but it took 40 years to get Egypt out of them. I said Israel, didn't I? He delivered them out of Egypt in a day, but it took 40 years to get Egypt out of them. They had to go through quite a bit, and we're going to have to go through quite a bit. Probably the most asked question that Christians have is, what is God's will? What's God's will for my life? Well, there's a couple elements here, and these are very overly simplified um, explanations, but we have God's revealed will and then his mysterious will. So we have two different things. His revealed will are things that we already know, things that he's given us. Here's an example. The most important commandment that Jesus gave us was to love the Lord your God by your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That was the number one commandment. In Matthew 7, 21, Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father. Now, this clearly refers to obedience to God's revealed will, because if we want to know how to live, we've got to know his commandments, right? So these are his revealed will. Um, Paul says to the Thessalonians, he says, It is God's will that you be sanctified or set apart holy, that you should avoid sexual immorality, also give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Now, we don't have to pray on whether or not to be set apart to live holy lives, to avoid sexual immorality, to live with gratitude. He's already told us very plainly. So that is God's revealed will. Um, his commandments, the thing that he instructs us to do, the things that we see in the life of Jesus. And then we have God's mysterious will. And it's often said that um, we will know the will of God by looking in the rearview mirror. Right, looking in our lives and seeing what God's done. I know this is true in my life. You probably see that in your life. As you look back, you can see God's hand in your life, steering and arranging circumstances for your good. Um, an example of that, I worked at uh, Channel 41 for like six years, and I did not like it. And so I left, and I was gone for three years, and then I found myself without a job and was having trouble finding something. And so I went back to my boss at 41 and said, hey, can I have a job? And he said, yes. And I said, God, I can't believe I'm going back here. I don't like it here. But he provided a job for me. And it wasn't too much longer that we became, we, my wife became pregnant. 
I supported her. Um, we, <laughs> she became pregnant, and we had our son Levi, right? And a lot of you know the story. Uh, Levi got sick, and we had to go down to St. Jude in Memphis. Now, here's the crazy thing. Most of the time, what happens is one family member goes to Memphis with their child, and the other family member has to stay behind with the other kids. And that's a tough thing. Um, oftentimes, a lot of marriages don't make it through that situation. And a friend of mine there at the station went to my manager, who took it up to corporate, and said, listen, we own, the same company that owned the TV station, owned the newspaper in Memphis. They said, wow, this is before Zoom. And they said, why don't we let Nathan go and work at the newspaper building in Memphis? He can work out of there and do his job. And they said, okay. And so we found ourselves as a family down in Memphis. And I look back now, and I'm like, wow, God, you brought me back to that job so that our family could all be together in that situation. And that's amazing. And that's God's mysterious will. And we didn't understand it, but we see it now in retrospect. And he told Moses, even in Exodus 3, God is talking to Moses and God said, I will be with you and this will be a sign to you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. Interesting here because he's basically telling Moses, you'll see it after it's done. You'll see my will after it's already been completed. Anybody watching the Olympics? I love watching the Olympics. We haven't been able to watch very much of it this year. Uh, the Winter Olympics are way more popular than the Summer Olympics, but of course, most people's favorite events in the Summer Olympics are the gymnastics. Right? The gymnastics are incredible. All the things they do are amazing. Um, I don't know how gymnastics is an Olympic sport, and then ping pong is an Olympic sport. Okay? <laughs> totally different ends of the spectrum. But I do like watching the Olympics, and especially um, the balance beam. If anybody's ever been on a balance beam, it's incredible. It's only four inches wide that these people are doing all of these flips and, you know, back backflips and all this stuff on. It's incredible. Um, actually, my sister uh, made a balance beam for her girls, and, you know, she wrapped it in carpet. It was awesome. And now she gave it to us, and it's in my garage where things don't get thrown away. So I'm still happy to thank you very much. And it only sits a couple inches off the ground, but if you try to walk around something like that, you know that it doesn't take much to fall off. Uh, and we were doing, actually, we were doing a devotion one night with our kids, and it was a trust exercise, and so we actually took this balance beam, and we set it on some chairs. And so it was about three feet off the ground, which made a big difference. And the person that was walking across had to be blindfolded, and then you took them by the hand, and you led them across. So that was a pretty good illustration of um, how we need to trust God and let Him lead us. Now, we tend to view God's will like a balance beam. Right, like we are trying very cautiously to navigate, to negotiate this very thin balance beam of God's will. And if we mess up just a little bit, we're going to fall off and we're going to become disqualified. We're going to miss it. We tend to think of his will that way. But what if we thought of God's will as walking with him along a path, along a road? I mean, a road is wider than a balance beam, but it's not, it's not terribly wide. Right? It's still pretty narrow. In fact, Jesus said it's a narrow road. It's a narrow path that we walk with him. Um, the world says, you be you, right? You be you. You do what you want. The road is wide. We will validate. We will approve uh, your choices because that's what makes you happy, right? But Jesus said the wide road leads to destruction, right? The wide road leads to destruction. Now, for you kids and for the non-heathens among us, Back in the day, there were two rock groups, and one of them wrote a song called Highway to Hell, right? And they were very excited about going to hell because all of their friends were going to be there. And the perception was it's going to be one big party, and we're all going to hang out there. They're sorely mistaken. 
but millions of people have sang this song, Highway to Hell. And then there was another group who wrote a song called Stairway to Heaven, which has nothing to do with heaven, by the way. Uh, I thought, well, I'll just read the lyrics, you know, just as it, no, it doesn't have anything to do with heaven, not at all, not even close. But my friend, um, who really wasn't a Christian, I don't know where he is right now with the Lord, he posted this, he said, the fact that there is a highway to hell and a stairway to heaven says a lot about the expected flow of traffic. See, even people in the world know this is true. It's a narrow path. So we stay on the narrow path, but there's still great freedom to make our own choices. Uh, there will be times when you will get the sense that God is leaving two very good choices up to you. Sometimes they're very good choices. Healthy parenting involves giving our kids choices. It helps them grow up. It helps them make choices. And that's one of the things that God wants us to do is, is to mature as believers spiritually making choices. And there is a saying that's been attributed to Augustine that you probably heard, and it says, love God and do whatever you want. Love God and do whatever you want. Now, a lot of people get this wrong and they say, do whatever you want <laughs> and just love God along the way. But what Augustine was writing about, the whole context is love. It's about loving God, pursuing God, chasing after him. And when we, when we walk with God, our desires become so aligned with his desires that our will is lined up with his will. And like Paul, we can say it doesn't matter if it's option A or option B. I want it because I want God's will for my life. That makes sense? Where we struggle, where we struggle is when options begin to be taken off the table. Because if we have options, that tends to lessen our burden. We have more choices. But as those options start coming off the table, that tends to increase our burden. Um, it makes us anxious. And when we have very few options, we have to be very careful about the decisions that we make in those circumstances because it's critical. The question we really need to ask ourselves when we don't know and we have two very difficult decisions to make is, do I want God's glory or do I want my comfort? Do I want God's glory or do I want my own comfort? Because we can ask the question, which one of these is going to bring God more glory? But if we, if we answer the question, I'm really only interested in my own comfort, two things can happen. We can either become fatalistic or we become materialistic. We can become fatalistic in our thinking or materialistic in the way we live. We can say, listen, I have had it. I'm done. I'm done with this world. I just want to go to heaven. Swing low, sweet cherry. Coming to take me home. I want to get out of here as soon as possible. And when we have those thoughts, when that becomes our mindset, that we're just done and we just want to leave and we just want God to come back, while we should desire to be with him, when we have those thoughts, we have to be careful because it can take us to a very dark place. The enemy can take those thoughts, can twist them. Um, now, some of us are more disposed to that than others, but can Christians become fatalistic in their thinking? You bet. The other thing that can happen is we become materialistic and say, look, things are tough. I don't have very many options. So I'm not in heaven yet. So what I'm going to do is just try to make myself as comfortable as possible. Surround myself with things. Kind of be selfish. And as I'm here, make it as smooth sailing as I can. Um, now, can Christians, regardless of economic status, become materialistic? I think, I think so. I think we all know the answer to that one. Paul says, if it were up to me to determine my destiny, I really don't know what i choose. Uh, for me, they're both really good options to either to live or to go be with him. And he says that he is hard-pressed between the two. Hard-pressed is something that I think a lot of us can relate to. Uh, being pulled in two directions, feeling stuck between a rock and a hard place. Uh, Paul writes this in 2 Corinthians 4. This is out of the uh, NIV translation. 
But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not despair. Persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. Now, you can only press so hard on a clay pot before it gets crushed, right? But it's Jesus, it's the Holy Spirit living inside of us that keeps us from being crushed. We're crap pots, but we're not crushed pots. Amen? <laughs> is there anybody in here, well, I guess you don't have to raise your hand, but is there anybody here that hates being in crowds? It just makes you very anxious to be in crowds. Some people get very concerned when they get in the middle of crowds. Uh, because there very much is the sense that you could be in a large group of people and things could change suddenly and there's nothing that you could do about it. It would be out of control. We get hard-pressed, we get anxious if we're not trusting in His will and that what He's doing for us is for our good and His glory. He is preparing us for eternity and we don't have to be anxious about it when we're hard-pressed. Now, people were constantly pressing in on Jesus. He was constantly hard-pressed. I mean, he would walk into towns, but he didn't even have to be in towns. He could be out in the middle of nowhere, and people would come out, and they would be crowding him in. It says on a couple times that there was concern that he would be crushed by the crowds. And there was one time where he went into a town, and he was going to a man named Jairus' his house, and his daughter, who was 12 years old, was sick. And he said, I need you to come heal my daughter. She's dying. And so Jesus was walking there and it said that the crowds were just about crushing Jesus. You can imagine his disciples are probably surrounding him, trying to push people back as he's just trying to walk down the road and people are pressing in on him, just trying to touch him. And then this one frail little woman somehow fights through the crowd and says, if I could just touch the hem of his garment, this bleeding, this problem, this health issue that I've had for 12 years, here Jairus has a 12-year-old girl that he's going to heal. And she has had this issue for 12 years. And she says, if I could just touch the hem of his garment, I know I'll be healed. And so she presses in and she touches his garment. And as soon as she does, Jesus says, who touched me? Now it's understandable why Jesus' disciples would have acted this way because the whole crowd was crushing him. And I think it's Luke's gospel that it tells us specifically that it was Peter. And he says, are you kidding me? That's Nathan's translation. Are you kidding me? Like, the crowd is crushing us. We're trying to keep people away from you. How can you say, who touched me? But this little bleeding woman felt hard-pressed to get to Jesus. And when she touched him, she was healed, not only physically, but of her anxiety and her suffering. Now, this is some advice for myself and for all of us here. That when we get anxious, when things feel like they are out of control in our lives, we need to not give in, but we need to press in. We need to press in. When things get out of control, we need to ask ourselves, how is our devotional life? Right? How is our prayer life? How is our worship life? Are we pressing in or are we giving in? Uh, when Jesus would get away, he would often go away to desolate places and he would pray and he would praise and he would just get alone with God. And his disciples knew that it was during these times that empowered him to live a life that was pleasing to God, to be able to live even when he was hard-pressed in a way that was pleasing to God. And they knew this. And so they asked Jesus, they said, teach us how to pray. Because they knew it was these times where he got away. They said, teach us this. We want to be empowered to live a righteous life. It's interesting because they did not ask him, to, you know, Rabbi, teach us how to heal people. They didn't ask him, teach us how to walk on water. Teach us how to be inspirational preachers. They said, teach us how to pray. They knew that was the source of his power. So, 
We don't need to give in. We need to press in. Amen? All right, verse 23. Oh boy, we're only one verse in. Okay, need to go faster. <laughs> My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Now, Paul's personal desire is to depart. Now, the word there, depart, is a Greek word uh, called analuo, which means literally to depart or departure. And this is where we get our, our word analysis from, which is to break up into its parts, to take something that's whole and break up into its parts. And there are three people that used this term, analuo, and it was sailors and soldiers and farmers. These three types of people would use this word. Now, sailors would use it when they were talking about loosing a ship from the dock, when they were unloosing the ropes, and Paul is saying, I am ready to set sail. I want somebody to let me free of this rope that is tethering me to this world. He's ready to go. Alicia and I, uh, when it first came out, I don't know if anybody's watched Deadliest Catch uh, before. That used to be one of our favorite shows when it first came out. Um, and I was on Tuesday nights, and I would go get Chipotle, and then we'd come home, and we would watch Deadliest Catch. And you could see this play out in real life because these people, when they were getting ready to leave, and they would get on the ship, there was both excitement, but then also a lot of sadness as they were getting ready because they would be gone for months at a time. Um, and what was really sad is if somebody was leaving, and they didn't have anybody to say goodbye to. Uh, but they were ready to leave. Um, now, we watched it for, I think, a couple seasons because then they took that phrase, cuss like a sailor, to a whole other extreme. And you couldn't even really make out any sentences because of all the bleep. So we kind of gave it up. But it was an interesting, interesting show to watch these people be excited to take off, but then also a sadness to leave them behind. And I was reminded of that when it was talking about these sailors and wanting to set sail, to depart. The second type were soldiers. And soldiers would use this word when they were breaking camp. When they were breaking down, when it was time to go, it was time to leave, to move on. And so they would use this word when they were going to go to another location. Second Corinthians 5, Paul uses this analogy of a tent, and he writes, For we know that this tent that is our earthly home is destroyed. We have a building from God, a house not made of hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. If indeed we put it on, we may not be found naked. For while we were still in this tent, we groan, being burdened. Not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. Now, I remember uh, when our family was young, when our family was smaller, um, Alicia and I thought it was going to be a good idea to try camping. Now, she didn't grow up camping, and I didn't grow up camping. And for some reason, maybe it was prophetic, I bought a huge tent. It's like a 12-person tent. So if anybody needs a huge tent, you can borrow it because it looks practically brand new. <laughs> we did not end up using it to go camping. Uh, we use it about once a year. We will go in the backyard and set up this tent. We will have a fire pit in the front and we will go out and stay in the tent in the backyard and everybody has a good time because I can walk into the house and go to the bathroom and use all the creature comforts that I'm used to. But I love being outdoors. I enjoy hunting. I love being outside. And I like being in a tent, but not for very long. Because it's confining, right? I don't want to stay there. Eventually, we have to break camp and move on. And that's another way that this word is used. Now, when I look at this tent, when I look in the mirror every morning, it starts to resemble the picture that I have in my mind less and less. It's a lot different than it used to be. And as we get older, we start to groan. We start to desire to break camp, to move on. The more we walk with the Lord, the more we have this desire to depart. Paul says we don't want to be clothed less. We want to be further clothed. 
not in rags, but in eternal threads, if that makes sense. And he who has prepared us for this very thing is God. Uh, Solomon writes in Ecclesiastes 3.11, says that God has put eternity in our hearts. He put eternity in our hearts to point us towards him. And every, there's so much in our culture today where people are getting into mysticism and spirituality because they know there is something after this life, but they don't want to look to God. They want to find it in something else, but it's there because God put eternity in our hearts. There's a longing inside of us to be in a heavenly dwelling. Now, the last type of person who would use this is a farmer. You probably guess the context. But when a farmer, after a long day in the field, would bring his oxen in, he would loose them from their yoke. He would undo their yoke. And Paul's saying, listen, I've worked a long time here, and I'm ready to be unyoked. I'm ready for my work to be done. As a matter of fact, Jesus said, don't let the world control you. Let me control you. Put on my yoke. Let me control you. My burden is light. And Paul said, I'm ready to take it off. I'm ready to go home. Pause for effect. All right. Verse 25. That was a joke. <laughs> Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and join the faith, so that in me you may ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Now, we talked about it last week, but Paul knew this was not the end for him. He knew he was going to be released. Um, he was thinking out loud for a moment, and now he's back, uh, telling the church that there's more for me to do here. I know that it's necessary for me to stay on and be your teacher. Um, specifically to help you grow and mature spiritually. The true mark of a spiritual person is that they're willing to put what they want on hold for somebody else. And that's what Paul's saying here. Listen, I'm willing to put what I want on hold. He's wrestling with these feelings of wanting to stay and wanting to go. He wants to go, but he's willing to stay on their account. It's kind of like, like if I was to go away for a week on a business trip, and I wanted, at least let's say I went to Hawaii, um, which hopefully I'll do something. Let's say I went to Hawaii for a trip and I wanted Alicia to go with me and she desired to be with me, but somebody's got to stay home with the kids, right? She desires to be with me. That's a better place. But for the kids' benefit, she's got to stay at home with them. But there's going to be a lot of joy when we're reunited. It says, I want your progress and your joy and the glory in Jesus because we're going to be reunited. Sometimes when people get their own way, um, or maybe something doesn't happen that they didn't want to happen, they will say, oh, thank God, right? And I don't think they think about that very much, what they're saying or what it means, but they say, oh, thank God. And a buddy of mine uh, was, we were texting back and forth, and actually it was about us getting this place, and I took a picture and I sent it to him. And he's a big Star Wars fan, I'm a big Star Wars fan. And if, if there's anybody who hasn't seen Star Wars, I'm sorry. But C-3PO is this robot, and he has been made by this guy named Anakin when he was a kid. And Anakin leaves to become a Jedi, and so there's a long period of time that goes by between when Anakin becomes Darth Vader, spoiler alert, and when C-3PO, when they see again. And something very positive happens at one point in the movie, and C-3PO says, praise the maker, which is an obviously, you know, transliteration of, oh, thank God. I just thought it was funny. He sent that to me. He said, oh, praise the maker. Um, and that gave me a lot of joy. <laughs> but Paul was sitting on his suitcase. He's wrestling with his emotions, his desire between wanting to go, but his willingness to stay because he could bear more fruit. His only connection to this world was bearing more fruit. Um, when Spain 
uh, was the ruling country of the day. They had pretty much discovered everything that there was to discover. They said, we pretty much found it all. We think there's done. And so the motto that they had come up with was non plus ultra, which meant nothing more beyond. And they had discovered it all, nothing more beyond. And then a guy named Christopher Columbus showed up and he ran into America, right? And so there's this monument that's erected to him in Spain and on the side of it, there is the logo, or there's the motto, non plus ultra. But then you've got this lion who's climbing up the side, scraping off the non. So now it just says plus ultra, or more beyond, right? They know that there's more beyond, and that's what Paul's trying to tell his congregation. He's trying to tell them, look, gang, there's more beyond. And you guys can come back up. Worship team can come back up. Whatever you're going through in life, regardless of how many options you have before you, our departure is imminent. We're going to heaven, right? That's our final destination. Our time here is brief. And if you are in a situation in life where you have very few options and you're hard-pressed and you're anxious, it gets better. It gets better. We have a better place that we're going to in heaven. Now, if you're in a place where you have lots of options and life is good, it gets so much better than you can possibly imagine compared to what we have to look forward to. So don't become fatalistic in your thinking. Let's not become materialistic in our thinking, but know that there's work to do while we're here, right? We need to be fruitful. We need to be walking in good works. We need to be living a holy life. We need to be giving and encouraging others to give. We need to be winning converts and we need to be also praising. We need to be praising God in all situations. Um, let's be fruitful while we're here because our true treasure is in heaven. Amen.